0: Welcome to the discussion, The Technology Challenge of Great Power Competition. Sponsored by Lidos. Here's today's moderator, Tom Tamman. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Jim Carlini, the Chief Technology Officer at Lidos. Mr. Carlini, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: And this idea of great power competition is really coming into so many government agencies, so many government policies in reflection of the way the world has changed in the past number of years with China rising for purposes of helping the government with its technology strategy to take on this whole idea of great power competition might be a good way to begin by having you define what it is exactly. What is it your customers are telling you that they mean by great power competition? And we can concentrate on also whether this is simply a defense department concern, or as I suspect, maybe it's wider than that.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. That's a a great place to start. I'd start by saying I don't think there's a great, an agreed upon definition of what great power competition is. In fact, uh, nowadays, I think people are arguing, arguing over whether that's the right expression to really capture our geopolitical situation. So I think the current administration, for instance, likes strategic competition versus great power competition. But by whatever name you prefer, it's a label really for a new era of geopolitical jockeying for influence and control of global affairs by great powers. So US, China, and Russia, generally what what folks mean when they say great power competition. It's got some attributes that are really important. It's a far reaching competition that really touches on all levers of power and it's very global in nature. So there really isn't a corner of the earth or frankly in orbit that is untouched by great power competition. So from deep space to the Arctic, the competition's being played out. And I'd also say that it's high stakes, right? So at at stake really is frankly, what the global order will look like in the coming decades and who's gonna drive it. Uh, Security architectures, international norms, what are they gonna look like? All that's in play. And will it be what we've enjoyed for many decades sort of a Western democratic capitalistic order or something very different, something dominated by by a few one, two authoritarian states. So it's a high stakes game uh, and it's also a very far reaching competition.
0: So then it would involve many organs of the government, not just the Defense Department, but I imagine State Department is actively there and Commerce and Treasury really all of
1: them. Exactly. And it, because we're, uh, what needs to be done is leveraging all levers of power. It really cuts across things like diplomacy, economic, military, information, intelligence, law enforcement, etc. All of those levers of power get touched. So. Uh, it touches the entire government, defense, intel, commerce, DHS, treasury. Uh, it's, and it's also, I should say, not just all parts of the government, but I think it hits home as well. It's, it's not, you know, in the last 20 years, we've gotten used to some of the fights we've had overseas. The fight was always over there or the competition was over there. It's something that hits home. It's, it's really hits every one of us individually. <clears throat> you know, the economic competition touches all of us. As we win economically or as we prosper economically, we all individually prosper. But when we look at the information domain and cyber domains, which have global reach, and to the extent the competition plays out in those domains, uh, it touches every one of us, it hits home. So whether it be large cyber breaches or influence efforts on social media, all those things hit home for us. So I think we all have a role. Our government obviously has a crucial role and parts of the government are moving out on this. But we have one individually, and I'd say finally that we in in industry have a privileged position to really help our government customers grapple with some of the challenges.
0: And we'll get into those in some detail, but I just wanted to point out something you said that's really crucial in this, and that is the economic competition. In the old Cold War, where the Soviet Union was the principal adversary, you might say, the economic interdependence of the countries was not very far extant at all. There was not a they weren't a big trading partner. China is a savvy economic power that sells and buys and we from them and them from us. And that does change the quality of how we pursue this, doesn't it?
1: It really does. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of many uh, big differences, I think, from the Cold War era. So as you pointed out, our, our economies are intertwined, uh, certainly with China to a great extent, but also uh, another difference from the Cold War era is China is truly an economic powerhouse. Second only to us, uh, Russia is is around sixth in, in the world, but China really is an economic powerhouse. So that complicates economic maneuvers in great power competition. We're also today versus the Cold War dealing with both China and Russia. So that's certainly a difference that complicates matters as well, both of which have significant strengths. Uh, some other differences uh, I can point out too is that we, uh, tech savviness, right? China is particularly uh, savvy when it comes to technology. They're making strategic technology bets, uh, things like artificial intelligence, and they're making a lot of progress in establishing competency in these areas and beyond. And to, to boot, they also have significant manufacturing capacity. So another difference from the Cold War era. There's a whole uh, there's a whole list of other differences as well that I could point out, but. Um, let me just hit a couple others just because I think they're, I think they're important for, for talking about how we respond to all of this. Um, the underlying global technology environment today, if we think back to the Cold War, it's so very different, right? We, we don't dominate many of the technology realms that we did back in the 70s, 80s. Um, today technology development is global. It's driven by the commercial marketplace. Uh, it's changing very rapidly so we have to we have to deal with that reality as well. And the last couple of things I'll point out is that uh, you know, we live in a world that is incredibly interconnected as opposed to the Cold War era. Uh, the reaching capacity of our global information fabric is it's remarkable and it's growing with things like 5g coming online. So all countries, people things are pretty much within reach from almost anywhere and that has Brought in what we might call the age of cyber. That you know, when I started my career back at the end of the Cold War, we were not talking about cyber the way we talk about it today. In fact, some terms like cybersecurity came about in the in the in the 80s at the end of the Cold War. Uh, today, it's a very different story, where cyber is part of a, a critical domain, both in peace and in wartime. So, lots of differences, I think, that complicate our challenges in great power competition between where we're going in the 2020s and beyond, and what the Cold War was like.
0: And you mentioned that the contractors, the federal contractors, have a privileged position here, and uh, therefore they have a seat at the table, you might say, and they have some particular insight into what the government requirements are. And you mentioned artificial intelligence as, as a good proxy for what's going on here between China and the United States. It kind of embodies all of the elements of the competition in some ways and in the united states at least that is mostly a commercially developed technology and uh, the defense contractors have at least in some degree invested in artificial intelligence capabilities but for the most part what dod is obtaining is not from the traditional suppliers but from commercial uh, suppliers outside of the defense establishment if you will So from Lido's standpoint, uh, as a non, uh, well, you you serve both ends of government, civilian and military, but you're not thought of, I think, primarily as in the same breath as like the Lockheeds and the Northrop Grumman's. So as a broad base supplier to both the civilian and defense sides of government, what is it they're seeking from the commercial side of AI that you can help supply?
1: Yeah, I think there's a let's see, there's, there's a lot of dimensions of uh, artificial intelligence that we can touch on here for great power competition. So I'll start by saying, you know, totally agree that, you know, the commercial world is driving a lot of the, the core development in artificial intelligence. Um, but in, in many cases for application to, for government purposes, one of the things that uh, some of our customers are particularly concerned about and, and really emphasize, and, there's, and there is development within the government in this regard, and and it's been important for us as well, is uh, what we might call trust and resilience. Or you know, before AI is adopted by many of our customers, they need to be assured that it will work as it's advertised. It needs to be resilient, uh, whether it's to an adversarial attack or whether it's simply uh, is it unbiased? Will it perform as advertised? There's a whole there's a whole array of, of concerns they have under you might say the banner of trust. Before I let it go out in the wild, I need to be sure it's trusted. So for us, and I think for some of our other um, colleagues in industry, part of what we need to do on top of some of the great technology that's coming out of the commercial world is help our customers both technologically and the way they employ it to gain that trust and to gain that willingness to put it out uh, in the wild, if you will, uh, to serve some of their mission purposes, which really range from war fighting, to simply gaining a lot of efficiencies that are very important for just uh, 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 reducing expenditures and allocating some of that money toward mission and toward the great power competition.
0: So in many ways, then, it updates the role of systems integrator from what it was earlier. And I think of LIDOS in some sense as an integrator for some of the big famous projects that you're working on with the federal government. So maybe comment on technology integration as a service that can help in the great power
1: competition? I think it does. And I think that, you know, the general theme that you'll, uh, that's important in, uh, in this is to be able to uh, be agnostic in doing integration across the vast enterprise, which is part of what Lidos brings because of the scale that we bring. But the general theme that we bring to, to those, that scale, those large scale integrations is resilience and security. And this flows directly from the great power competition. right? Because every domain is contested in a great power competition, whether it be for defense applications, but also for civil and health applications. Uh, we need to protect uh, healthcare data. We need to protect the infrastructure for our healthcare systems and hospitals. Uh, we need to protect the critical infrastructure for, uh, for the nation. So, security is a major theme that we as a system integrator bring to our customers and it's absolutely critical that we do that and we bake that into everything we do and in, in fact here at Litos we talk about something we call Litos secure which is which is our effort to make sure from information systems to physical platforms to complex integration jobs that we're baking in that security in everything we do
0: i was going to say that's one of the great challenges for contractors then is deploying potent technologies but in a way that conform to U.S. values and constitutional and legal limits. And that's not a constraint necessarily on some of the other countries.
1: That's that's exactly right. And AI is a great example of that, right? Where I talked about trusted AI, Um, one of the things that we make sure that we do when we introduce AI for our customers is we build in the explainability and the ability for them to understand what it's doing and why and to understand it's not biased, that they can trust it. But very importantly, we come with a decades-long ability to introduce it into the field, a methodology by which they can play with it, they can dial up and down capabilities, they can come to trust that it's going to do what they want it to do and not do things that they don't want it to do. So uh, a very important part of what we do uh, when it comes to AI and in all of our applications is to build in that trust and resiliency and, and, and security across the board
0: and those are requirements i imagine that are built into the activities the contracting and acquisition activities that you're seeing in those activities that are related to the competition
1: i'd say they sometimes they are sometimes uh, i think in some of our customers are just beginning to get to the point where again back to our great power competition context they're just beginning to grapple with some of these implications of, of great power competition so this Baking in of resiliency is not always uh, front and center, but I think more and more over time, we're going to see that be front and center because, because again, the, the, the global interconnectedness that we have touches everything. So, so all of our customers are going to be doing this more and more, worried about resilience.
0: Yeah. So in a sense, you can lead them that way as a contractor, gently, but also maybe help them steer toward where they need to be that you know and they know, but maybe the language isn't quite there.
1: That's exactly right. And what we talk about internally here is, is um, a strategic anticipation. Right. So we're we have constructed ourselves and our technology strategy uh, to, if you will, play for the 2020s. You know, we're looking out to the 2020s and saying, okay, what are our customers going to need? How do we anticipate that? What are the attributes that we see that we need to bring to them? So when they, in some cases, customers at a diff- are at a different uh, point in the spectrum when it comes to responding to great power competition. We want to be there ahead of them and help them to, to, to have the tools available to them. And this is, gets back to my privileged position, right? That's our job as an industry is to have those tools available to them to be a, a, an industry partner that can be there when they need it and to deliver what they need rapidly.
0: All right, we've got a lot more ground to cover, but we're going to take a break right here. My guest today is Jim Carlini, the Chief Technology Officer of Lidos. I'm your moderator, Tom Tem, and this discussion is the Technology Challenge of Great Power Competition, sponsored by Litos here on Federal News Network.
1: Cybersecurity
0: threats are happening in every industry. But when it happens to you, it's your mission at stake. As bad actors become more brazen in their attacks and methods evolve, it's time for a new approach to securing critical networks. Lidos is helping government agencies like yours modernize their approach to cybersecurity, staying one step ahead of even the most advanced persistent threats. Visit Lidos.com secure to learn more. That's leidos.com slash secure. Welcome back to our discussion, The Technology Challenge of Great Power Competition, sponsored by Lidos here on Federal News Network. My guest today is Jim Carlini. He's the Chief Technology Officer of Lidos. I'm your questioner and moderator, Tom Temin. And before the break, we were talking about artificial intelligence as a key enabler for so many of the responses that the nation will need in this great power competition we've been discussing. I wanna get to the other big one or one of the other big ones, namely cybersecurity. And cyberspace you know, has become a domain really for some years now for the Defense Department. And what do you see as the big cyber challenges coming next? I mean, we have a zero trust architecture mandate from the White House, but it's a bigger question than that, isn't it?
1: It is. It's a bigger question. And, it, and it, as I mentioned earlier, it, it really touches uh, every part of the federal government, every part of the nation. Um, and in fact, uh, we know that in the great power competition, you might think of it as sort of the front lines because uh, there's so much activity there now. Just uh, just in July, the uh, US government uh, attributed some targeting of industrial control systems to China and also released a statement about uh, attributing the recent Microsoft Exchange server exploitation to China. So there's a lot of activity that hits home. Uh, it's a big technological challenge, right? So you mentioned zero trust is, is uh, one of the things that's being pushed out of the White House at the very highest levels, and you know zero trust basically is a different way of architecting uh, systems that assume that potentially somebody's already in my system and I can't just keep them out with a big firewall. So it's a different way of architecting things, and it's in a sense it's an admission of uh, you know we really have to look at cyber very differently. Um, in addition to that there is a confluence of, of artificial intelligence, which we talked about earlier with cyber. So you know, the, the art of cyber, both offense and defense is, is something that is being accelerated by the addition of artificial intelligence. So that's another area of, of intense research. So for us, you know, we've been, as I talked about previously, anticipating those needs and from our perspective, trying to help our customers figure out how do I adopt Zero Trust? where is the best technology out in the commercial world. So for us, we have something called a Zero Trust Proving Ground, where we can do that for our customers They can see how it works. And we're also bringing AI into Zero Trust to have better algorithms for determining how to manage a Zero Trust resilient architecture. And then we're also, in general, using AI with cyber uh, to more more quickly come up with better defensive uh, applications and to really counter the advanced threats. Those that come from state actors, that are really very very good and tend to really hide in networks and they're more difficult to see. So that's where we've been going in cyber. Very important area, just not just for defense but for the entire nation.
0: And just to follow up on that, as the Defense Department deploys more automated and autonomous types of platforms, and you know they they sort of go back and forth on the speed at which they're deploying those. But the zero trust needs to operate not just in the traditional systems of human users on networks going to data and applications, but also on non-human autonomous systems where the commands might be a bot or might be something that's not initiated by a human at a keyboard. And so do you need to bake zero trust into those types of systems so that that system will know, yes, this is a legitimate command and that one is not.
1: That, app, that is absolutely right. You know, and at its at its core, zero trust is a philosophy. It's not a thing you can go by, right? It's a way you architect systems, whether they be manned, unmanned combinations, whether they be information systems, or whether they be things like uh, derivatives of what the DOD calls JADC2. If I'm gonna tie everything together, uh, I need to make sure that tying of everything together is resilient. And I need to make sure that architecture, Again, zero trust as an architecture has those same principles where I'm testing everything. I don't trust anything. And I'm constantly making sure that the things that are touching my system, my network, those data, that data, those applications are all trusted, but I test them, I verify. So absolutely, it touches all sorts of systems and architectures.
0: And JADC2 is a good way to transition into the question on space, the latest domain for the military. There's a new service for space related issues and that's also crosses civilian and military lines in a profound way and it's also one where a lot of commercial technology is coming in and replacing what used to be government exclusive territory so it's a complicated situation up there that we can't see but we know it's up there what are your thoughts on the technological challenges in the space domain part of the great powers competition
1: well, they are they are vast as they are in other domains. Um, I'd say the other attribute. You're right. The, the commercialization is is uh, obviously a big difference these days than what it was uh, certainly many years ago. But the other thing that's happening, and you're seeing this, is this weaponization of space. That uh, you know, China is clearly seeking to establish their leadership, and in, including weaponization. We saw just recently what was an apparent ASAT test from the Russians, uh, creating a large amount of debris. So. In addition to it being a a very complex and now intertwined with commercial entities, it's also a contested domain. So now it's a fighting domain. We, Over the next decade, I think you're going to see and you're seeing now a lot of activity to to grapple with how we deal with that and how we deal with both leveraging the commercial world, but also making sure we can secure space in a way that that, um, it can be used for both commercial and military purposes um, across the world.
0: Because I imagine a lot of the assets deployed in space are done so on the assumption that nobody's going to shoot at this thing or nobody's going to try to zap out this. But we now know by some recent events that's not the case. So I imagine that in future space requirements from industry, whether it's the launch item and vehicle itself or all of the supporting systems, a big integration job, by the way, that this, this hardness will need to be a requirement they're going to have to add.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it, 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 so it gets back to the comment I made earlier about resilience. And, and you know, just to, to double click on that a little bit more, so that resilience can take the form, a lot of different forms, right? One is we talk about cyber hardening all the time. But resilience, again, is just like a supply chain, it can be architectural as well. So I can have, I, I can, I can have an architecture in space that is in intrinsically more resilient just because of the way I construct it. I have far more satellites instead of uh, you know, a few that might be more vulnerable. Uh, those kinds of things you're going to see happening for as we go forward in space, but you're also, you're also going to see it in another domain. So, um, you know, we're seeing in cyber, we're seeing in space, we're living through today supply chain challenges that are highlighting some of the the, the danger of, of not having resilience baked into your, into your supply chain, whether it be for the, for the homeland or for military purposes. Uh, so resilience in the supply chain is something I think we'll see a lot more of as well for our customers.
0: Yeah. And just sticking with the space uh, example there, then 500 CubeSats might be more resilient and more flexible than a single billion dollar satellite that you launch and hope for the best.
1: It certainly would be a lot, many more uh, satellites to have to deal with than one. That's, for, that's for sure
0: but they can at least share the load maybe if something happens to one of them. And what about the hypersonics? I mean, I don't know whether LIDOS is in that domain, but it gets to another one of these challenges that we see the adversaries rolling out and demonstrating. And the United States is not quite there yet from what we can tell, at least publicly.
1: Yeah, we're, we're very much in that domain at LIDOS, And obviously it's been in the press a lot, the Chinese hypersonic capabilities. Um, it's a very important uh, development and a very important area. So the, you know, the combination of speed, maneuverability, and altitude of hypersonic weapons really makes them potent weapons and, and demands uh, both an offensive and a defensive look at how we deal with that. Right? So we're involved on the offensive side. We're building the common hypersonic glide body at our Dynetics site down in, in Huntsville, Alabama. So we're involved in building uh, the nation's premier offensive capability. But we're also looking at the defensive response as well. So we're part of of industry uh, uh, competing to build uh, IR systems in space that would be able to detect and track uh, hypersonic vehicles. So we're involved in both sides of it. Uh, Very technologically challenging problem. And one where, frankly, uh, we need to move with speed in order to make sure we're competing uh, in the hypersonics realm.
0: And I want to get back to the supply chain too. something you mentioned just a moment ago. And so far, the attempts to secure the supply chain have, I mean, they've done some good, but you know, it puts a lot of emphasis on attestation by the suppliers that they have cybersecurity controls in place. But I sense that the supply chain security supply chain assurance issue is bigger than that. Uh, Tell us what you think.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I I think, you know, uh, cyber is only one aspect of su- supply chain resilience, right? So uh, there's, there are many others. There's counter counterfeiting. There's there's, uh, there's and there's the architectural level of how you actually architect the supply chain, where you have to avoid uh, single points of failure uh, and 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 architectures that are intrinsically not resilient, where where a critical part of your supply chain is dependent on. Uh, an unreliable source, for instance. So there's, it, it's not just a cyber problem. It is an architectural problem, and both have to be grappled with simultaneously.
0: And let's talk about the general need for speed. This is something, this very expression you're seeing coming from some of the administration documents. Recently, GSA said it would modernize a lot of systems, demonstrating that the government can move at the need of speed. What, how will speed play an important part in this, and what manifestation will it take in the great power competition as the nation moves ahead,
1: I think it's of uh, it's of the utmost importance, uh, frankly. So, you know, and and the for the first time in my career, or at least, is more than any other time. Uh, some of our leadership, especially in the DoD, they're they're ringing alarm bells about speed, right? So, uh, General Hyten uh, recently talked about China's pace of military development being stunning, just uh, the speed at which they're moving out. Uh, Last year, our Air Force Chief of Staff, General Brown, released a paper called uh, Accelerate, Change, or Lose, pretty uh, provocative title, right? And then recently, uh, Air Force Secretary Kendall said we're being more effectively challenged militarily than at any other time in our history. So the alarm bells are going off, and that is all about being able to move very rapidly from this point forward. So we need to innovate with speed, and we need to do that um, across the board, across all the domains that we've been talking about today.
0: Yeah, we need to innovate and we need to also be able to turn turn on a dime, probably fair to say.
1: Exactly, which means we need to be strategic and in some cases make some hard choices. Uh, but uh, that's that's part of the challenge I think our customers are grappling with now. We in industry have to help give them those choices and make sure that they make sure that they're real and they're not false choices.
0: Well, fascinating stuff. I want to thank today's guest is Jim Carlini, the chief technology officer at Leidos. I'm Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Lidos. Thank you for listening to the discussion, the technology challenge of great power competition. Sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Network.